Good morning to all of you. The past couple of Sundays, we have considered together the wonder of God's mercy as displayed in God's purpose of election. God's purpose of election. I did not coin that phrase. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. And so what we have done the past two Sundays is try to get our minds around it. And in particular, the wonder of God's mercy as it is revealed in God's purpose of election. Today, we're going to take one last look at it. We're going to return to Romans chapter 9. We're going to focus in on verses 19 through 23. And again, one final look, glance at the wonder of God's mercy in God's purpose of election. I want to ease into it, however. Uh, I realize that uh, this theme, God's purpose of election, it's one of those subjects that you just can't drop on someone. Um, You can't walk into it unprepared. It requires some finesse, (laughs) as putting it lightly, in terms of our thinking, some preparation in terms of our understanding of God's word, of God's character, and of the gospel itself. And so I want to prepare us for verses 19 through 23, and that to which Paul's going to draw our attention to in that particular text. I want to prepare us by looking at the, the Apostle Paul himself. And in particular, I want to make five remarks about Paul, five observations concerning Paul that come out of the book of Romans and come out of, namely, uh, chapter 9. And I trust, my, my aim, my goal, is that these five remarks will ready us, prepare us, get us thinking again, get all our everything in place, the blocks, the foundational blocks in place so that we can handle what he's going to say starting in verse 19. So the first remark is this. I want you to notice, and I want you to never lose sight of this. I want you to notice Paul's vision of the gospel. Did you get that? His vision of the gospel. It begins way back in chapter 1, verse 17. He tells us that in the gospel... Uh, The righteousness of God is revealed, right? From faith, for faith, as it is written, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Immediately, in the following verse, all the way through to the middle of chapter 3, he explains why that must be so. He explains why the righteous man, the righteous woman must live by faith. And there in those chapters at the outset, he paints that very dark portrait of our sin. And he reminds us that we are sinful sinners and rebels in the sight of God and worthy only of God's condemnation. Having set that foundation in place in the middle of chapter 3, he explains what it means, the just shall live by faith. And he explains that God justifies us. He justifies us how? By grace alone. It is a gift, undeserved, unmerited It does not hang or depend on anything in us. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. We simply receive it. And it is in Christ alone. Why is it in Christ alone? Because Christ alone has satisfied all righteousness. He satisfied the law. And Christ alone, Christ only has paid the penalty for our sin by hanging, by suffering upon Calvary's cross. And so now, 
When I believe in the Lord Jesus and become one with him, what happens? God is prepared to change that sentence from guilty, condemned, to what? Justified, forgiven. All because of Christ. Paul does not lose sight of that glorious truth. In chapter 6, the emphasis changes to sanctification. But what he's really doing, starting in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 8, is showing the relationship between sanctification and justification. He's showing us, look, when you become one with the Lord Jesus, one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, it not only has implications for the penalty of sin, it has implications for the power of sin. You're a different person. The Spirit of God now dwells within. You're no longer who you once were. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Having dealt with that relationship between justification and sanctification, as we ease our way into the ninth chapter, he now brings this doctrine of election into view. And his goal is many goals, but one of his chief goals is this, is again to show the relationship between justification and election. And it is to demonstrate for us that it is impossible to preserve the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the doctrine of election. Why is it impossible? It's impossible for the following reason. As I'm sitting there in the morning, and I'm celebrating this great truth. I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It does raise this obvious question. Why am I justified? Why did I believe? If my answer to that question is found in me, if my answer to that question resides ultimately in me, I have actually undermined justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and I am now holding to justification by works. The only reason God justifies me is found in Him alone. The only reason I believed is found in God alone, and the answer is the mystery of His sovereign mercy. And that is the relationship, the bridge that Paul is building between the doctrine of justification and election beginning in chapter 9. We must never lose sight of his vision of the gospel. We want a simple gospel. Simple gospel is the book of Romans. From the very first verse to the last verse, the whole thing constitutes for the apostle Paul the simple gospel, and we must never lose sight of his vision for it. Second remark I want to make concerning Paul is this, his conviction that truth matters. I alluded to this a couple Sundays ago. It bear, it's worth repeating. Paul's conviction that truth matters. Interesting study. Don't do it now. Do it on your own time. It's my time right now. Interesting study on your own. Go all the way back to chapter 1. Just go as far as we are now in the middle, more or less, of chapter 9. And look for a couple of phrases. The first phrase is simply, it's actually just a term, therefore. And note how many times Paul uses that word, therefore. The second is a phrase. It, it takes a couple of different forms, but it's essentially the same phrase. It's a question, what then? Or what then shall we say? And you will find, you will discover that Paul uses that phrase dozens of times in the first nine chapters of this book. Why? Because for the Apostle Paul, there is a direct correlation between doctrine and practice. There's a direct relationship between truth and life. Paul never, ever minimizes the truth. 
We must never lose sight of this deep conviction that truth matters. And as I stated a couple Sundays ago, I'll repeat it now. Blurry notions of the truth, blurry notions of doctrine ultimately lead to what? Blurry Christians. If our understanding of the truth is fuzzy, all I will ever be is a fuzzy Christian. You know, Paul is unrelenting. Therefore, 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 what then? What then shall we say? And even in this chapter, well, in many, in many ways, he brings it to a climax. He deals with the most, some of the most difficult theological concepts found in the Bible. He does not shy away from them. Why? Because he believes truth actually matters. It actually makes a difference. The third remark concerning Paul I want to make is this, his commitment to God's glory. Just flip over for a moment to chapter 11. And these few verses right at the end of chapter 11 bring to a consummation everything he said in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. We really could go further back, but they are kind of a conclusion to this third section, fourth section in this epistle. And look at what he says in verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, he's the cause of all things. Through him, he's the instrument, the means by which all things exist. And to him, he's the reason all things exist. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We cannot make heads or tails of the Apostle Paul unless we understand those verses. That for him, the glory of God is everything. Oh, please understand it. I'm sure I've made this point before now. If I haven't, shame on me. Man is not Paul's starting point. Paul does not begin with you. He does not begin with me. He doesn't even begin with him. Paul's starting point is always God. His reference point is always God. And this commitment that he has to God's glory. Fourth remark I want to make is this. I want you to notice Paul's evangelistic zeal. Paul's evangelistic zeal. And I want you to pay close attention. We've been there. I'll just read the verse again. In the ninth chapter, at what he says in the third verse. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So here's a man who's consumed with the glory of God. Here's a man who is consumed, committed to the gospel of God, this this overarching vision of God's gospel. And here is a man consumed with the salvation of his fellow man. I want you to notice, equally interesting, we'll get there a couple Sundays from now. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire... And prayer to God for them, speaking of his fellow countrymen, the Jews, is that they may 
be saved. Now, why do you think I'm emphasizing this? Paul's evangelistic zeal. I'm emphasizing this for the following reason. Here it is. Whenever we speak of God's purpose in election, the response that invariably comes is what? Oh, that stifles evangelism. Really? The Apostle Paul is the one who is waxing eloquent on God's purpose of election. And yet it is the Apostle Paul who is willing to be accursed for the salvation of his countrymen. And it is the Apostle Paul whose desire and prayer, oh, God's purpose of election impedes prayer. It impedes evangelism. Wrongly understood, it might impede those things. Rightly understood, it is a fuel for both. That when we understand God's sovereignty and salvation, we have every reason and motivation to witness. We are compelled to get involved in a VBS. We are compelled to declare whosoever will may come. And we can do so boldly. We can do so lovingly. We can do so unapologetically knowing that God works for the salvation of his people and we pray for the salvation of people. Well, if God knows who's going to be saved and if God's purpose of election is true, then why pray for people's salvation? Oh, my friend, the opposite is true. If salvation doesn't depend on God's sovereignty, why pray? If God isn't sovereign in salvation, what are you asking him to do when you pray for someone's salvation? You're actually asking him to do something you don't believe he has the right to do. Now, there's a contradiction if ever I've heard one. Oh, don't lose sight of God's sovereignty and salvation. And my friends, please understand, again, where this truth is rightly understood, there will be zeal for evangelism and there will be fervency in prayer. Let me take it a step further. Anyone who claims to hold to God's purpose of election, who does not have zeal for evangelism or prayer, does not really understand God's purpose of election. They have misunderstood it. Or at the very least, they have misapplied it. There is no inconsistency here. We see it in the example of Paul himself. He takes us to this highest peak, the wonder of God's mercy as displayed in God's purpose of election. And at the same time, no inconsistency. Oh, such evangelistic zeal. His desire for the salvation of others. And his commitment to pray for unbelievers, his commitment to pray with all earnestness, oh, my desire and my prayer is for their salvation. The fifth and final remark I want to make concerning Paul is this, his pastoral approach. He's a pastor. His pastoral approach. Hear this. Paul is deeply theological. And Paul is deeply doctrinal because he is deeply pastoral and deeply practical. Did you get that? He's deeply theological and doctrinal. Why? Because he is deeply pastoral. 
And he understands that working through these great truths, there is a pastoral end in view, building up the people of God in their most holy faith. And that's what sets off the chapter. You go all the way back to the end of the previous chapter, the eighth chapter, and you look at what he declares there in the 39th verse, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will what? will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is writing to Christians. He is writing to those whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And he is saying, look, here, here is an anchor. Here is an anchor that will not budge in the worst most torrential storm of life. It will not give way. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, pastorally, I need to deal with something. And to deal with this pastorally, boy, I'm going to have to take you to the depths and I'm going to have to take you to the heights. I'm going to have to hurt your brains and work through these doctrines and these truths. Why? Because he knows that statement raises a dilemma. And it brings us into the ninth chapter. You know the dilemma if you've been here the past couple of Sundays. The dilemma resides way back in Genesis 17. Where God promised Abraham, I will be your God. You will be my people. Your offspring, I will be their God. And they will be my people. And so there you have this marvelous promise. People are going to wonder in Paul's day, well, look, that promise was given to Abraham concerning his descendants, that God would be their God, they would be his people, and yet as I look out at the Jews, very few of them are God's people today. As a matter of fact, they are accursed. They are cut off from the love of God. That creates a problem for me pastorally, Paul. It creates a big problem because you've just told me there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, it looks to me as though something did separate the Jews from God's love because God made that promise. Paul gives his solution, doesn't he? Beginning in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the promise of God has failed. You've misunderstood to whom the promise was given. He makes it clear, doesn't he? The promise wasn't given to Abraham's physical descendants. No, no, no. The promise was given to Abraham's spiritual descendants. Sixth verse. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That is his physical offspring. No. Let me give you two illustrations. Two examples. Two proofs that, 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 that demonstrate beyond any shadow of a doubt what I am asserting. That the promise was never given indiscriminately to Abraham's physical offspring. Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was in, Ishmael was out. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was in, Esau was out. Those sons of Abraham, those grandsons of Abraham... All his physical descendants. Well, if the promise had been given to Abraham's physical descendants, well, then all of those boys, all those guys should have been what? Saved. They weren't. Isaac was a child of promise. Ishmael wasn't. Jacob was a child of promise. Esau wasn't. And so it has continued throughout the history of the nation of Israel. There has always been the true Israel 
within national Israel. And those are the ones to whom the promise was given. He's going to blow our minds. Maybe not ours. But certainly those living in the first century. He's going to absolutely blow their minds in verse 24, where he actually carries on his central, central argument. Why? What's he going to say there? Even us. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he's going to turn to the Jew scriptures. He's going to turn to the book of Hosea, and he's going to turn to the book of Isaiah, and he's going to prove what? That God's promise was given to the spiritual offspring of Abraham, all those who are in Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it makes no difference. Oh, please understand this. It would go a long way to remedy much of what's out there this day. For the Apostle Paul, there are only three groups of people. Are you ready? Group number one, unbelieving Jews. Okay? Group number two, unbelieving Gentiles. Okay? Group number three, Christians. That's it. There are only three groups of people. Christians, the offspring, the true offspring of Abraham, and the true heirs of the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promise. That is what Paul is hammering away at this chapter. Well, what do I care what happened all that time ago? You should care because of its pastoral implications. It proves that God's word has not failed. God's promise never failed. Therefore, there is no question going all the way back to the end of chapter 8 that nothing in heaven or earth will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because the love of God has always been fixed on a very specific group of people. All those who are one with God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose of election. The whole thing depends on Him and Him alone. Therefore, I have this great comfort. I have this unshakable assurance that nothing can get between me and my God. Nothing can get between God and me. I will be their God. And they will be my people. Praise God, it doesn't depend on us. It is the outworking of sovereign grace, sovereign mercy that depends from beginning to end on God alone. Now in the middle of all that, Paul gets off on a tangent, doesn't he? Why? He needs to deal with objection. Objections coming at him right, left, and center. He knows how people think. Undoubtedly, he's heard these objections dozens of times. The first objection is raised right there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Uh, say then to what? Well, what he's just said in verse 13, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What, what are we supposed to say to that? Uh, how are we supposed to make heads or tails out of that? Is there an injustice on God's part? Doesn't that make God unfair? And this is what we considered last Lord's Day, Paul's response, by no means. And he goes back to two Old Testament passages of Scripture, both in the book of Exodus, to demonstrate what? That God's very name, His very nature, His very essence, His very character is what? Goodness. Specifically what? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's nature is to be merciful. He is free to give mercy to whoever he pleases. He is not obligated to anyone. The response is what? I understand that. I kind of like it. I celebrate the fact that God is merciful. But you know, I really think he's obligated to show that mercy to everyone. And as I explained last week, that is what? In its very essence, it is a contradiction. Because if God is obligated to anyone, guess what? It is no longer mercy. It can't be. And so this idea, well, God's showing mercy to whomever he pleases. I actually think that's unfair because he's kind of obligated to show it to everyone. Well, that you cannot have it both ways. The very definition of mercy is what? It is not deserved. It is not merited. And the individual who bestows mercy is under no obligation to the receiver, but free to give that mercy to whomever he chooses. It is the very nature, essence, and being of God. He brings that entire, his response to that objection to a head in verse 18. So then he has mercy. On whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And Paul knows that's going to lead to what? A second objection. And that's what we have now beginning in verse 19. You will say to me then, I know what's going on in there. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? If God's the one who has mercy on whoever he wants hardens whomever he wants, well, then we're not responsible. We're not accountable. How can God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, Paul answers the question with four questions. Here you go. Question number one, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's a good one. Question number two. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Question number three, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Question number four, verse 22, what if God desiring to know his, to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The question continues into verse 24, but I'm going to stop it right there. That's as far as we're going to go. Because that is the crux of Paul's reply to that objection at the outset of verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Four questions. He answers with four questions. Questions number two and three belong together. All right? So in actual fact, what we have then is a three-part response. Part number one. Right there, verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Here, Paul appeals to God's thoughts. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Hear the words of Isaiah 55, God speaking. My thoughts 
are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. You see, God's thoughts are boundless. Our thoughts are bounded. God's thoughts are limitless. Our thoughts are limited. God's thoughts are infinite. Our thoughts are small. They are sinful. And they are skewed. We have a tremendous example of this way back in the book of Job. Oh, a great book for a host of reasons. But the book of Job, you know it. First couple of chapters, you have the, the, basically the essence of the story, the narrative, what happens. Job loses everything. Then beginning in chapter 3, for more or less 35 chapters, all the way through to chapter 38, what do you have? You have belly aching, right? You have Job's lament. And you have his best friends coming and trying to explain to him uh, why he's had this problem and how to go about resolving it. 35 chapters. Finally, enough is enough. And in beginning in chapter 38, 39 and 40, God speaks. I just want to draw your attention just briefly to two things God says. Here's the first in Job 38. Dress for action like a man. Be a man is what God says. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and may you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then in chapter 40, he says something similar. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like me? And can you thunder with a voice like me? What is God saying to Job? What is the Apostle Paul saying to the audience of his day? Us by extension. I think it is simply this. We are like two-year-olds listening to a lecture on quantum physics. Please understand that. We are like two-year-olds listening to a lecture on quantum physics. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? I've heard the following ascribed to Abraham Lincoln. I've heard it ascribed to Mark Twain. I've also been told it's an ancient Chinese proverb. It might be, and maybe both of those men were quoting it. Here it is. The Apostle Paul could have said it himself. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. Paul could have penned those words right there. Who are you, O dust? Who are you, O creature? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Understand this. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. The second appeal he makes is to God's rights. Two questions brings us into verse 20. 
Still in verse 20, the middle of it. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Second question, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Very interesting illustration. What's his point? Let me break it down in five points. I'll start simply and we'll move to the more complex. Number one, the potter is God. Agreed? As Paul, Paul's emphasizing that right here. He speaks of a potter. The potter is God. So far, so good. We can check that one off. Second is this. The lump of clay is humanity. Okay, that makes sense too, doesn't it? So we have a potter, God. We have lump of clay, uh, humanity. Third thing I want you to notice is this. The potter doesn't make the lump of clay. That's extremely significant. The potter doesn't make the lump of clay. This is not humanity as created by God. This is not Adam and Eve, as God on the seventh day looked out upon all his creation and declared, it is very good. This is not humanity as created by God in innocence. What is this? This is fallen humanity, the lump of clay. This is fallen humanity. Go back in your mind's eye to the third chapter, verses 10 through 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does any good. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So again, the lump of clay is not humanity as created by God. It is fallen humanity as a consequence of the fall. Our own sinful rebellion. Oh, that is key. Here's the fourth point. The potter decides what to do with the lump of clay. Guess what? He's under no obligation to it. He could decide to do nothing. He could throw it all away. Or he could choose to make some vessels for honorable use and some vessels for dishonorable use. But the lump of clay is what it is. Fallen humanity is what it is by an act of our own willful sin and rebellion. And the potter is under no obligation to the lump of clay. Fifth thing I want you to notice is this. The clay can't say. Takes us right back to verse 20. Why have you made me like this? No one. No one in the past, present, or future can say to God, why have you made me like this? No one in the past, present, or future can say to God, look, you owe me. You had no right to do that with me. You had no business doing that with me. You had no right to give to another what you withheld from me. You had no right to give to me what you withheld from another. You had no right to do whatever you pleased 
with me. I have rights. No one can say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Why? Please understand it. The starting point is a lump of clay. The starting point is fallen humanity. And God isn't under any obligation to do anything with fallen humanity. This is where many stumble, right here. Why? Because their starting point isn't man's sin. Their starting point isn't the fall. Their starting point is this assumption that man is pretty good. Their starting point is man's innocence. The starting point is, well, I, I think I'm actually a pretty good guy. And building on that, what's the conclusion? God is under obligation. God must treat everyone the same. Oh, look at history, my friends. God obviously hasn't treated everyone the same. Just look at the history of nations and the rise and fall of societies and the history of individuals. It's objective truth and reality. He obviously hasn't. And yet this notion that most, all, will not let go of, God is under obligation to me. No, he is not. We lost all rights in the garden. And ever since, God has been working with a lump of clay and is not obliged to anyone. That is the second response Paul makes here, appealing to God's rights. Third response is this. He appeals to God's motives. The fourth question, verse 22. What if God, and desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's fascinating. Here we understand that God's chief purpose is not to make me happy. I know it pains me to say it. I'll say it again because I still don't believe it many times. God's chief purpose is not to make me happy. His chief purpose is not that I have a great life. His chief purpose is not that I be successful. His chief purpose is not that all of my dreams come true. God's chief purpose is simply to glorify himself. That's why I belabored in the introduction Paul's vision of the gospel and Paul's vision of God's glory. If we don't understand where Paul's coming from, this makes no sense to us. Why? Because if people don't engage me in the first 10 seconds, I lose interest. Why? Because I'm convinced it really is all about me. I'm convinced I really am the center upon which all revolves and turns and everything relates back to. No, we're not. God is. And God's purpose is God's chief end is his glory. And in particular, Paul says here, one aspect of that glory, his mercy. In the verses, we see three degrees of mercy. The first degree of mercy is this. You have the lump of clay. God could have thrown it out. He didn't. Guess what? That was mercy. That was mercy. Do you know why the story of the flood is in the Bible? Never wondered about that? We probably hear a host of different reasons. And there are a number of factors going on there. Don't misunderstand me. But you know why the story of the flood is mainly in the Bible? 
simply to show us what should have happened. That's why God looks out, Genesis 6, and he sees man's wickedness, and he sees what? That the imaginations, the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. And he sends a flood by, according to his purpose of election, he spares Noah and his family. But God is declaring what? Look, this thing should have ended long ago. I could have destroyed Noah and his family as well. Look, this thing was over a long time ago. It was over as soon as Adam and Eve fell. Fallen humanity, a lump of clay. I have kept it going. And please understand, it is a revelation of sovereign mercy. The only reason we have thousands of years of human history, you can sum it up in one word, God. That's the only reason. That is the first degree of his mercy. Second degree of his mercy is what? That out of that lump of clay, for whatever reason, I do not know. And I know this is troubling. I know it is. For whatever reason, out of that lump of clay, for reasons that reside in God alone, and I need to trust the fact that he is good, his thoughts are not my thoughts. He has chosen to overlook. He has chosen to pass over some. He has chosen not to save some. But understand this, he is not responsible for their condemnation. They've condemned themselves. All he is doing is what? Choosing them. Allowing them to choose exactly what they want. But the second degree of mercy is seen in what? That he puts up with them still. That he displays unbelievably pati unbelievable patience still. You go back to Romans chapter 2. There Paul speaks of God's loving kindness. He speaks of his patience. He speaks of his forbearance towards sinners. And all of this is designed to do what? To lead them to repentance. There is the second degree of his mercy. And then you have the third degree of his mercy, which is what? That out of that lump of the clay that he could have destroyed a long time ago, out of that lump of clay from which individuals arise whom God will judge, out of that same lump of clay, again, for reasons that reside in God alone, he is chosen beforehand to make them vessels for his glory. Vessels of mercy. Well, my friend, as a believer, do you understand who you are? Do you understand who you are? Do you understand these degrees of mercy? And do you understand? Oh, do I understand? The only thing that makes me different from someone who is lost is this. God's Sovereign mercy. Oh, it makes me weak in the knees. It really does. Where would I be? What would I be today? Who would I be if not for the mercy of God? Oh, perhaps you're, you're an unbeliever, my friend, and you are, you're struggling to get your mind around all of this. Maybe you checked out 15, 20 minutes ago. That's okay. Come back now. Come back. There is a puzzle there. I know it. There's a lot of tension in what I've been saying. I recognize it. And there are questions that will go unanswered. I know. I realize it. Here is what I want to say to you if you're an unbeliever. Please, just narrow in. Give me your attention for 30 seconds. Here it is, my friend. You know, God is much greater than you ever thought. I want you to understand that. 
God is far bigger than you think and far bigger than most Christians portray him today. He is far greater than we think. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. Conversely, don't be insulted, but it's the truth. You are much smaller than you ever realized. You are much, much smaller than you think. We are, says Scripture, but grasshoppers in the eyes of a holy God. That leads me to the second thing I want you to understand. God is far more righteous than you think. He is a burning fire. He is, says scriptures, a consuming fire. He is this resplendent light to whom no one can approach, no one can go near. His eyes are too pure to behold evil. Conversely, I want you to understand this. You are far more sinful than your wildest dreams. Oh, you, you, we can't even begin to scratch the depths of our depravity and sinfulness. Now, it gets really good here. I want you to understand this. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is the bridge between this great and holy God and you, a small, sinful creature. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bridge. I ask you, don't try to solve puzzles you cannot solve this morning. I give to you the revealed will of God, and here it is. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He will save you. He will be merciful to you beyond, again, your wildest dreams and imaginations. The Lord Jesus Christ suspended between heaven and earth, bridging the gap between a holy God and sinful man, so that whosoever would come, whosoever would repent, Whosoever would believe would know for certainty forgiveness of sins, assurance, and hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Oh, and crossing over that threshold and then looking back, you know what you can rest in as you look back? God's purpose of election. (laughs) And you can find great pastoral comfort in realizing what? It actually never had anything to do with you. But it has to do with a great and glorious God. And there is now, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing in heaven nor on earth that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Heavenly Father, praise you for the gospel. Praise you for its simplicity. Praise you for its profundity. We can wade in its waters and its shallows, and so too we can dive into its depths. And there, whether in the shallows or the depths, we behold your glory, the glory of your righteousness and holiness, the glory of your loving kindness and patience, the glory that we see so wonderfully displayed and portrayed in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see this day, and for any unbelievers in our midst, be merciful. And we do intercede on their behalf that you would show them, firstly, their sin and their need of Christ. That you would show them, secondly, the beauty of the Lord Jesus. The beauty of the Lord Jesus that he hangs upon Calvary's cross, suffering for sinners. And then you would convince them, finally, that by resting in Christ, they can have the assurance of sins forgiven, fellowship with you. We ask it of you, seeking it from you. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.